Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. Steve Suttmeyer has been in the technical analysis game for a long time. Uh, he is chief equity technical strategist at B of A Securities, and he is a double threat. He has both uh, a CMT and a CFA, looks at the world from a very interesting perspective. I get B of A research, and in particular, I really enjoy Steve's monthly chart blasts, as well as his you know overview. Every now and then, he'll do a deep dive into things like sentiment or sector rotation. I find his work to be very informative and very useful, and I think you will also, with no further ado, my conversation with B of A Securities, Stephen Suttmeyer. Thank you very much, Barry. So, glad to be so here. yeah, I'm glad to have <laughs> you. So, so let's talk a little bit about your background. So, you get an MBA from Fordham. What was the original career plan? Yeah, so I, I went to Fairview University uh, undergrad and. Um, it was right. I mean, put it this way: it's right after the right after 1987 crash. So I was there from 89 to 93, right? So right. instead of pursuing business, I pursued pre-med. And since my writing skills weren't all off the snuff, I just dove in and said, you know what? Let me get a double major and do English writing. So I wanted to challenge myself, mm-hmm. improve my communication skills, you know, through through the writing process. Uh, long story short, you know, get out of college. It was a tough time. You know, it was the early '90s, and you know, it was hard to find you know jobs. And I was I was not a good standardized test taker. Right. So my MCATs were were bad, but uh, I took them three times. But I managed to jump my score. Right. So I still was able to get a few interviews at med school, but you know, I kind of changed my mind on what I wanted to do. So, you know, after I, I you know, so what I did was. I was looking around for finance jobs, and obviously you're not going to hire, you know, a pre-med bio major, an English writing major, right. you know, all right off the street, right? So, so I just answered an ad from the paper, and guess where I wound up? I wound up after the boiler room right across from Stratton Oatmont. Oh, really? In 1994. What were you doing there? I was one of those cold callers. No and, kidding. And, you know, quite frankly, 
it was a very interesting learning experience. I was only there for a year and a half because if you've seen the movie Boiler Room, sure, I lived it. Was that was that accurate? I mean, their it, office was a lot nicer than ours, but generally speaking, was fairly accurate. And I remember when he was studying for the series seven in the movie, he's like, he's realizing, wait a second, you know, they're they're doing things that are not right. And I'm sitting there like, man, I'm glad I'm not licensed yet because <laughs> you know the last thing I want to do is you know get booted out of the business before I even start. So you know, you know that scene in um, Wolf of Wall Street where where DiCaprio sits down in the room and makes that first mm-hmm. call. I worked with guys who were that good, um, but came from that same sort of background, and they all seemed to be too impatient to get rich slowly. Uh, but a lot of these things really resonate, really come across as that was a real thing in the eighties and nineties. It, it was, and you know, I just learned that it, you know, I just it just the antennas went off, and I'm like, this is not where I want to be. To you say know? the very least, and then and then the the funny thing about it was when when I see those movies, both uh, Boiler and Man Wolf of Wall Street. The script that they're reading from is exactly the script that they gave us. Uh, you know, whoever <laughs> did amazing? their research, you know, they found a bunch of stuff, and it was it was pretty amazing. So, so you work, you leave that world, and you go to a few boutique shops. That's right. You work at Capital Growth Financial and Informer Global Markets before you join investing giant Merrill Lynch in 2007. What was that transition like from smaller shops to a really, really big one? Well, I mean, that's, that's a great question. Uh, let me just spend 30 seconds before answering that. Um, I was lucky to have a dad in the business, you know, mm-hmm. so he you know, didn't take me on, you know, initially. And I had to go through kind of like that, that McDonald's thing, working the fries, right. you know, at the boiler room <laughs> kind of thing. Right. And then um, in 1996, I actually worked for him for a little while. And uh-huh. we went down to a firm in Florida. Then, uh, you know, I made friends with some people in the research department there. And that's when I started to focus on research. So first it was a hybrid technical fundamental and then and then, you know, went to fundamental and then went back to technical full time. So the reason why I went on to Merrill Lynch was, um, look, I was you know entrepreneurial. Uh, I, I worked for small firms that that we could have built into a big business. But the problem was we were charging four cents a share and, and you know, we, uh, that make a long story short. Everybody else was charging one or, you know, even less than that. And. You know, we weren't able to compete. And yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It was very hard. So I'm like, let me get to somewhere more stable. Big Mother Merrill in 2007. Right. <laughs> stable. Perfect. perfect. Little, little did I know what was going to happen right. two years later. Per- perfect. Well, well, let's talk about that. a year and a half that. later. <laughs> Let, let's jump ahead to a question I was going to ask you later. You joined Merrill in March of 2007. Right. On the, you know, verge of an epic, a cusp of an epic meltdown. Uh, what was that year at Merrill like? That had to be kind of wild. I, yeah, of course. I mean, it, it's just, uh, I just remember because I was a little bit more seasoned. You know, I've been in the business 15, 16, 17, no, no, uh, 14 years, 15 years when mm-hmm. that hit. And I just remember the weekend of, you know, the shotgun wedding, you know, in 2008. Right. I just remember sitting down with some of my colleagues who were a lot younger and they're like, what do we do? Right. I'm like, well, you know what? You you do your job until someone says you can't. <laughs> because, Just keep your head down, keep working. I mean, you know, I live. I, I worked at other firms where they had layoffs like every few months, and you know, we knew when they were coming and. Just like, you know, you just do your job until you're told you can't. And that's that, you know, I mean. I have a vivid recollection of, what was his name, Thane? Was the CEO of Merrill at the time? Yes, I believe so. Um, and I remember that wedding comes off and people were like really upset about it. 
And I was like, what are you talking about? He just saved the firm. How are you a possibly, oh, I'm sorry, your stock options are worth a lot less as opposed to zero? Something is better than nothing, right? Well, I mean, you know, look at the, the, the news on the weekend that weekend, seeing everybody taking boxes out of Lehman and Bear Stearns. Right. So it's like, yeah, it, it's it's a totally, it's it's very different. And door number one was much better than door number three in, in the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, obviously after that, you know, merging the two together, you know, the redundancies and things like that. And, and you know, they took the opportunity to, you know, at least in, you know, on, on, on teams that were big, you know, cut them essentially in half. Right, you know, a lot, a lot. merge the two, take the, right. the people who they think are the top performers, and but that's pretty typical in that's the a way it finance M and A, right? The way that's it works. how it goes. <laughs> this just happened to be done so rapidly, there was hardly any time for for planning. It seemed like everything was on the fly. Yeah, so the biggest thing I was we were worried about. So I was working with Marianne Bartels at the time. Oh, sure, uh, she was running the the department, and um, you know, the biggest thing we were worried about. We weren't worried in one regard because you know B of A did not have a dedicated technical analysis team. But at the same time, we were worried that B of A did not have a dedicated tech. You know what I mean? Because maybe they may they not appreciate the, exactly. the value of it. But, so, uh, but so, they did. And they kept us. They kept, you know. So let me on. roll back. I jumped ahead. What was it that, you know, you have a background as both a CFA and uh, eventually a CMT. Given your background and fundamentals, what was it that attracted you to the technical side? Well, I started off technical, which is unusual. Normally, it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. um, and. It was, you know, my my first uh, research boss. Uh, his name was Stefan Haber. He worked at uh, William R. Huff and Company, and he encouraged me to take the CFA exam. And I remember that first level was tough. I had no finance background. Accounting was very difficult. So right, it's I, about a fifty percent fail rate, something like that, maybe even more. I mean, the level one was. I don't remember at that time, but all I do remember was the first half of the test. I felt like. You know, I failed it. So then during lunch, I guess I pulled the Harlem Globetrotters and regrouped and was able to get through the <laughs> second part pretty easily. Right. So, but no, it, it, it's, that's, that's what turned me on to. And, and, you know, we had a very fundamentally oriented research group and I was a technical analyst. So he kind of, you know, brought me on as a hybrid analyst and it was mm -hmm. good. I mean, I learned a lot from when I worked there, you know, I covered, uh, you know, the first stock, I guess I was jointly covering with another analyst was uh, J-Bill, you know, which was based mm -hmm. in St. Petersburg. So, you know, so that was kind of fun. Yeah, so I, I got to learn a lot there. So so uh, how do these complement each other? How do the fundamentals complement the technicals? Um, and does one sort of dominate the other? Or are you, uh, <laughs> are you a technical analyst with a fundamental sort of uh, in your back pocket, not what, what the key driver is? No, my, my, my primary work is, is technical. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of fundamental, I rely on our analyst ratings at the firm. You know, I, I look and see, you know, what stocks they, they like, what they don't like, and I look at the charts, and if it melds with what they're saying, I go with it, or if it looks like it's going to turn in favor of what they're saying, I go with it, and vice versa. Of course, there's other times where I have a really compelling chart, looks bullish, where they have underperform on it. I, I'll publish on it. Mm -hmm. But I always say, hey, here's here, you know, fundamental view is different. Here's the research. Don't have to look at that, you know. So I respect the work that they do, um, and you know, I try to I try to enhance it as much as I possibly can. Um, so for me, though, uh, technicals are always, you know, first and foremost, because that's my role. 
But I mean, obviously you want to own something that has some sort of intrinsic value. So mm -hmm. I think that's the way I would probably think about it. You know, more of a, you know, of a can slim type of approach because I was always a William O'Neill fan and, right. and he just passed away a few months ago. So mm -hmm. that was kind of sad because I was, I have that book on my, on my shelf, you know, as, as we all do, <laughs> as we all do. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it is a, yeah, I mean, I look, I mean, I know in another world, you know, if, if, you know, if I was ever moved on to somewhere else where I was, you know, doing, you know, something in a smaller shop, I'm sure I would put that fundamental hat on a little bit more often than I do now, but mm. I don't have to now because I got a whole team of fundamental analysts that, that so we, we rely on. You're reminding me of the Ralph Acampora quote, fundamentals tell you what to buy, technicals tell you when. Accurate? I mean, I love the quote, but I, I don't necessarily believe it's entirely accurate, and here's why. I think technicals can tell you what to buy as well. Oh, really? Because if you can see a price pattern, you know, you can see a trend. Um, and if you're if a stock's building a big base and say the analysts are 90% sell ratings mm -hmm. and a lot of volume is surged down, you know, when the stock first declined to say $5 from 20, right? And then volume surged and all of a sudden you're trading sideways for a long period of time on less volume. You know, your fundamental work saying, hey, wait a second, you know, this seems to be undervalued or or maybe the earnings are going to improve next quarter or something like that. Um, you know, that's something I would look at to potentially buy, even though technically speaking, it's not very strong, but it is building a big base. And if the relative chart, because I do absolute relative work, if the relative star chart starts showing outperformance um, versus you know, when compared to the absolute, meaning the market's corrected a lot, but this stock is starting to lead, that tells me, you know what, somebody may know something I don't. And I, I should, you know, maybe build a position in that name. Um, so I think technicals are helpful with what and when. In fact, I'm probably more of a what to buy than a when to buy type of guy because, mm -hmm. look, I have to put out a research note and it's like, you know, I can't just say, hey, buy this name here at this price. It may never hit it. So I just kind of say, hey, here's a, something that looks attractive technically. You know, our fundamental analyst has either a buy or sell on it, but technically it's attractive. You know, I think it's a stock to buy. And you know what? I would put the levels in there. If it hits these levels, then then it becomes, you know, more time to buy. But either way, you know, I'm building a position there, you know, based on my research. So your title is Chief Equity Technical Strategist. What What is a day in the life of the Chief Equity Technical Strategist at a big shop like Merrill look like? Yeah, so B of A, um, when we, uh, you know, it, it's it's a combined hybrid role, right? So we service uh, the the global private clients. So the financial advisors mm -hmm. are, you know, a big part of what we do. We talk to them a lot. I do a weekly uh, webcast on Wednesdays for them, twelve noon. Uh, you know, you go on the road, you see offices. Uh, they ask you questions about markets, stocks, things like that, and you try to help them out as much as you possibly can. You know, there are some uh, financial advisor teams that have me do webcasts for, uh, you know, clients, um, you know, periodically, sometimes quarterly, sometimes monthly, and sometimes just internal, you know, just so they can. Because the one thing financial advisors say about the research that we put out on the technicals is that I may not be a technical analyst, but when I read, you know, B of A technical research reports, it gives me something intelligent to tell my clients, especially when times are tough. And even if they're not using it other than that purpose, I mean, that's a victory right there. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. 
It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, how technicals work. And I want to start just by asking... How do you define technical analysis? I've heard lots and lots of different definitions. What's yours? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I mean, I'm sure it's changing um, as days go by. But for me, I mean, we're, we're you know using mathematics, quantitative methods to identify and spot trends and patterns in the financial markets. I guess that keeps it pretty simple. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's really just um, trend following and pattern recognition. I will occasionally throw in second derivative type of indicators of price, like you know an RSI or or relative or strength like that. indicator. That's right, right, relative strength indicator. Generate overbought, oversold, but also involves things like breadth, sentiment. Um, I used to do a lot of credit market work too. Um, you know, just looking at credit spreads and things so, like so that. So let's define our terms along the uh, along the way. When sure, we talk sure. about breadth. We're talking about uh, the numbers of advancers versus decliners. Is it a broad market right. or is it a narrow market? Yeah, and that's one of Bob Farrell's ten rules to remember. You know, markets are, are stronger when they're broad and weaker when they're narrow. So, mm-hmm. so again, ways to measure market breadth would be the advanced decline line, as you just mentioned. Also, new 52-week highs, new 52-week lows. You can also use four-week lows, 24-week lo- uh, highs and lows, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other things would be diffusion indicators, like the percentage of stocks above moving averages. So, if you have... I mean, you know, interestingly, if you have the S&P, you know, above a 200-day moving average yet, you know, fewer than 50% of the stocks are above it, you know, that, that kind of tells you something about breadth of the market. You know, the mm-hmm. market's stronger, but more stocks are below the moving average. So, I mean, I think that's something to look at. So, some of these indicators, like the percentage of stocks above 10-day moving averages, can also be used as momentum, you know? So, sometimes you can use breadth as a momentum. So, this, the other thing I mentioned was sentiment. Mm-hmm. So, that basically is sentiment and positioning, lump in positioning as well. So, if you're watching sentiment, it's the surveys, you know, the um, the investors intelligence survey, bull bear, and um, correction, and then you got AAII bull bear and neutral. Mm-hmm. You have so those are tell, those are sentiment indicators. What are they telling us? What investors are doing? Now, hopefully, investors are saying, I mean, what investors are saying, right? right? Not doing. Hopefully, what they're doing is close to what they're saying. That's what sentiment implies. But then you overlay that and look at something like a put call. You know, that tells you more what they're doing. You know, the volume of puts are higher than the volume of calls. Mm-hmm. That goes above one. That means investors are fearful. Um, another one I look at that I find very useful for tactical lows in the market, but sometimes more meaningful and tactical, would be taking the three-month VIX, the mm-hmm. volatility index, and dividing it by the one-month VIX. So when that is high, like 1.25 or above, investors are like, I'm not concerned about volatility in the immediate future. I'm more concerned about it, you know, later on. But when that goes below one, that means the VIX is higher than the three-month VIX. So investors are more concerned about volatility now, which means they're more fearful. And when you have that set up, the market is often closer to a low. So 
that everything you've just described is is a loaded series of um, follow up questions you you've given me. Uh, I w- I want to talk about sentiment, but you mentioned Farrell, and for folks who may not know who Bob Farrell is, um, tell us a little bit about the legendary Bob Farrell. Well, I mean, he was the dean of technical analysis at at, at uh, Merrill Lynch, you know, for the better part of had to be 40, 50 years. Right. He um, has his uh, 10 rules to remember. and a lot Which, of, by the way, have become, you know, uh, almost biblical for a lot of people in markets, a well, lot of tech- technicians, for sure. I mean, those are huge shoes to fill. There's no question about it. And if I mention any of these things, any of his rules to follow my research notes, it's like my readership doubles. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So That's it's funny. like, forget about him. I mean, I mean, forget about me. It's all about him, right? right. You know, I just kind of have to invoke that presence, you know, in my job, I guess. Because some financial advisors, actually, when, you know, you see some of the commentary they write, uh, the greatest compliment I think they ever paid me was he um, he invokes Bob Farrell pretty well. <laughs> and I know that's not 100% true because nobody can do that. Right. But just to have half of that, I think, is is, is, uh, is a compliment. That's great. What, what other uh, technicians do you admire? Who who else in the business uh, do you think does a, a nice job? I mean, look. I mean, I you know, I obviously I compete with a lot of guys that do good work. But um, going back to the day, some of the folks that have influenced my work, influenced my work the most, um, I would say. Initially, it was uh, John Murphy with oh, his sure. book. I mean, I have the the torn up dog eared book, you know, technical analysis of the futures market. Mm-hmm. You know, that was pre- you know now it's called technical analysis of financials market. So I got an old dog eared copy at my desk still. Uh, I would say Martin Pring. I learned a lot from you know through his Pring. Work. Oh, really? And you know some good cycle stuff there. Uh huh. Momentum. I got his book on momentum, um, which which I found very useful. And uh, I guess a third one I think that that impacted me quite a bit was Dr. Alexander Elder, who wrote Trading for a Living. Right. And what I liked about that was, A, there's a lot of market psychology, investor psychology in there, but also how to run a, you know, trading systems based on indicators. And I think that helped me out a lot. And much of in that book has influenced the way I've thought about markets and, and picking stocks. You know, as a, as the equity technician, that's kind of what I need to do is identify stocks that I think can go up or down or at a minimum, you know, underperform or outperform. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I use some of the techniques that he put in there, in particular, like a triple screen trading system where you have your, your you know, your weekly time frame, but you, you, you make your decisions off the daily. But I managed to do it all on a weekly chart, because if you put three different moving averages on a weekly chart, you can look at, you know, a long-term moving average and a short-term moving average and do it that way, mm-hmm. you know, where you decline below the shorter-term one and hold the longer-term one. I generally can, I, gen, I generally view that as, as a positive for a stock and look to buy it. So so you're mentioning uh, folks who've been around a while, like John Murphy and, and Pring and Farrell, and uh, I took the class with Ralph Acampora. I know a lot of people back in the day who used to do their charts by hand every day. Uh, and and now there's just um, so much uh, computing power around. How has the computerization of everything changed technical analysis? What what do we do with all this horsepower? Well, I mean, it, it definitely can allow for more rules based signals in some regard. 
It allows us to do things with a greater universe of stocks. Um, and I, 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 think it, I think it is useful to have that. But when I first joined Merrill Lynch in 2007, we were still we still had point and figure charts that we were updating mm-hmm. by hand. X's and O's. X's and O's. You know, of course. Tom Dorsey, that crowd. Yeah, I mean they they I mean they yeah Tom Dorsey I believe Investor Intelligence also has a product on point and figure I mean very popular among the financial advisor crowd but not so popular among the institutional crowd mm-hmm. you know the institutional crowd probably looks at it it's like I'm looking at a letter from my grandmother with the X's and O's on it you know right. and she gives me hugs and kisses it's a little you know? imprecise <laughs> it's not as as it I mean it depends it, it, it seems make, to be yeah. more general than yeah. than a uh, uh, I mean, you can make it more precise if you want to, but that requires a lot more effort and work. And, you know, with the computing power in a day, I think the one thing that's changed is, you know, a lot of people can think they can pull up a Bloomberg and all of a sudden call themselves a technical analyst because it's just very easy to create these things. You I'm, know? I'm glad you brought that up because I recall when I started on a desk in the 90s, if you wanted to put charts on a computer screen, you had to subscribe to a very specific package. Um, even the terminal back then, you couldn't do what you could do today. It's right. light years ahead today. Kind of now, you go to any website and have unbelievable access to all sorts of technical studies. I'm curious, what sort of impact does charting software for free everywhere have on the practice of technical analysis? Well, I mean, it's again, it's still a market where people will, you know, trade and and you know make decisions to buy and sell. I mean, I I do look at stockcharts.com. I mean, when I'm on the road, that's very easy to pull up and right. and work with. Um, I mean, does it make it more of a self fulfilling prophecy? Uh, who knows? I mean, but I think the general it doesn't it wouldn't negate, you know, the one major thing that dominates financial markets. It's fear and greed, you know, and maybe it accelerates that process a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing, it's really not just technical analysis, but it's the availability of information and instant analysis. Right. You know, analysis can be done. I mean, just let's face it, there's there's businesses built on that premise where, you know, they have high frequency trading where they calculate things in, in you know, milliseconds. I don't even know, but you know what I mean? It's like really fast. Nanoseconds. Nanoseconds. Right. Instantly, probably, yeah. Probably the more accurate way of saying it, nanoseconds. So, I mean, it just makes things very quickly. And you know how I adapted to it? I, I, I focus more on a, on a longer term time frame. Not not like monthly, but weekly. I You know, the daily gets a little bit noisy. Very noisy. Back in, fact- in, back in the day, it was intraday charts that got really noisy, but now daily charts have gotten noisy. You know, I, I hope weekly charts don't get noisy because that, that would complicate things even more. I'm curious if the um, zero-day options that expire every single day have an impact on, on trading and have an impact on charts. Probably. You know, I'm not sure what the impact exactly is, but, but um, yeah, I mean, I think just instant, you know, in, you know instant, you know, whatever the term is, I can't even know, but it, it, you know, just instant information. I mean, it just it just makes things um, more volatile. Generally mm-hmm. speaking, you wouldn't know by looking at the VIX, but you look at like intraday price action, day by day price action. It's like you got stocks that have multi billion market caps that are moving like two to three percent, you know, within the span of fifteen minutes. I mean, that's 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 a lot. You wow. know, <laughs> I mean, you mentioned fear and greed. Tell us a little bit about how you can use technical analysis to look at sentiment. Yep. So. A lot of different ways. Uh, first and foremost, I mean, you, you got the surveys that we talked about earlier. You got the book haul ratios. You got the VIX. Let me interrupt you and ask you about the surveys because I always find that 
what people say they're doing and what they're actually doing on those surveys don't always seem to line up. Right. Um, how how and they seem to spend most of their time in a sort of no man's uh, zone where there's no signal. It's at the extremes when they're useful. How how useful do you find sentiment surveys generally where we're asking people, how bullish are you? How much equities do you have? How much bonds do you have, et cetera? Yep. I would say it's more useful uh, in calling lows than it is in highs. Because mm-hmm. when you think about a low in the market and fear in the market, there's more urgency. Complacency, by definition, is not urgent. So that's why I, I think that sentiment surveys work better when you know, bears surge above 55, 60%, which is where they stood September of last year, you know. Complacency um, is not urgent. It's not. That, that no. that's, that's a great sentence. Yeah. I always think of it as it's hard to identify when people kind of get bored and stop buying, but it's easy to see when everybody's panic selling. Exactly. Right? And that's what sentiment shows you. Uh, you see it on the put calls. You can see it also in um, futures positioning. Uh, How, what what are you looking at in futures positioning in order to identify a bottom? Um, it, it's it's it, usually it is aggressive shorts from leverage <laughs> funds on S and P futures, and huh. and are these professionals or are these punters and amateurs? No, they're professional. They're professional, but even professionals can form a crowd and a herd. I mean, that's <laughs> that's the point <laughs> of the indicator. Um, you know, that's the reason why you know there's a hedge fund you know clients that that. Yeah, you visit outside New York City. They want to, you know, avoid the herd, right? Um, but the other factor is uh, asset manager positioning. Those are the smarter, I think. I view them as smarter. So when they're oversold, the market's usually down as well. But when the market starts to bounce, they start to go with it. And, you know, they hit their lows, two of them last year, one in June and, and one in October. October. Right. And it, it was great. It worked out really well using that sentiment indicator. So... Um, I, I think there is still use for them. I will admit, though, sometimes I do wonder whether sentiment, is, you know, becomes more of a momentum indicator, which which I think makes sense because, let's face it, I mean, if the market rallies, fifteen percent, and the asset manager is still here mm-hmm. and not buying the rally, then something else is happening. Right. You know, so sentiment does need to turn into momentum, meaning that sentiment needs to start to confirm. Price action. Can can everything be charted? I mean, we're talking about um, uh, sentiment. We're talking about trend. What about things like fundamentals? Can you can you chart the rate of change on earnings? Uh, where do you draw the line of hey, technicals aren't going to help you there? No, I'm sure you can. I mean, I I haven't done that much work. I mean, you know, a PE ratio, you can chart that. I mean, pretty easily and do analysis on that. Um, uh, I think. I think it's probably more useful in economic indicators like the unemployment rate or um, uh, the um, claims data. And, you know, we actually did some scenario analysis around that recently, just talking about, hey, what happens if the employment rate rises versus falls? What environment does the S&P work better in? And, you know, the obvious answer is the obvious answer, right? Mm-hmm. So, but it's not necessarily true because there's some periods of time where the unemployment rate does rise, where the S&P actually does rally. Mm-hmm. And there's other periods where the S&P does not. And I really, you know, it, it's, it depends on what your market tie is. How do you think about intermarket analysis? Are you looking at the stock market is doing this relative to what the bond market is doing? 
How important are looking across different, here's what the U.S. is doing, here's what's developed ex-U.S., here's what emerging markets are doing. How, how do you consider different geographies, different sort of asset classes? Uh, do, they, do they interrelate at all? I mean, I think they do. I think we've seen that over the last year or so. Um, so so here's, here's a way I, I'm looking at it near term, not, not making any sort of forecast or anything like that. But last year where we stood, market was very nervous, S&P around the 200-week uh, moving average, mm -hmm. finally started bottoming out. But what was the ingredient to get that low in the market? It was the dollar topping. Peak inflation. Yeah, that, that yeah that happened. I believe in June of last right, year. Right, right. And that that's helpful. Also, yields topping out as well um, in September, October last year. So, the, there's a negative correlation between the dollar and and uh, between stocks, the dollar and bonds. So, mm -hmm. meaning, you know, higher interest rates, lower stocks. Higher dollar, lower stocks. That's been the trend. So, the S and P rallied from last October, ran into trouble this summer. You know. And, you know, which is where the dollar bottomed out and mm -hmm. yield started to really rise again in earnest. And now here we are. Oh, God, it was a massive surge in yields from August, September, October, and stocks went the exact opposite direction. Yeah, have had a 10% correction. And, you know, we'll see what happens going forward. But I would think, you know, not that this is a prediction or anything, but if that correlation holds and, and if the S&P gets a seasonal bounce, which normally is something that happens around this time of year, one would think that if this correlation continues to hold, that a seasonal bounce for stocks likely requires yields to be stable to lower or, uh, or the dollar stable to lower. And, you know, we'll see how that plays out. But that seems to be the correlation, the intermarket correlation that, that seems to be, in my mind, the most important one right now. So what do you think generally people misunderstand about tech? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, sometimes I get emails where they think I'm like a, you know, a magician trying to pull a rabbit out of a right. hat. You know, they're asking for something technical you can't do. Right. You know what I mean? They're like, they're, you know, they, I mean, look, I mean, if you give them a few good calls, they think you can predict the future, but we can't. You know, we're just gauging risk and reward. And I think that's what... That's a really good way to, to express that. You're looking at various patterns and setups to identify your best risk reward setup. And I think that's a big misunderstanding because most people are of the mentality in the DraftKings world that, you know, technical analysis is a good way to enhance their gambling habit, you know, <laughs> but what we're really looking to do is manage risk reward. I mean, you know, I always tell like hedge fund clients when I'm talking to them, you know, they're, I mean, a lot of them are long short, but they're like, yeah, I'm like, here's how you identify, here's how I would identify a core long. You, you, first and foremost, you identify what your benchmark is. How are you measuring your performance? Mm -hmm. And you take your absolute price, and if the absolute price is trending up along with the relative price, that's where you look for core longs. And if you've got good fundamentals there, even better. On the other side, you know, weak relative, weak absolute, that's where you get your call core shorts. And I tell them, like, you know, where it becomes really interesting is when you have a stock that's been trending up for a while, but all of a sudden the relative ratio starts lagging, meaning that if I'm a fund manager at the end of the quarter, oh my God, you know, Apple's up 15%. Oh, wait, but the market's up 20. I'm lagging. You know, then they kick that out of the portfolio, and guess what happens? You know, the stock starts to form a top because of selling pressure. And the, and the same thing on the other side. So it's like you. you and to be, to clarify, you're yeah. not saying this about Apple. No, no. You're just using as, as a random example. example. As right. an example. Not not talking about Apple or a prediction there at all. But, but um, what I, you know, what I'm saying is it's like you can find a time using technical analysis to say, you know what? I've been bullish this stock. 
but it's starting to lag the market. Maybe it's time for me to revisit my fundamental thesis. And that's, and that's good. That's useful information to somebody because what I've noticed is when a stock in an uptrend starts underperforming the market, guess what? The, I mean, I haven't tested this yet, but the theory is, and if I test the hypothesis and, and, and the theory and this theory works, the theory is a weakening relative often precedes fundamental information that's less bullish than people expect. And I've seen it happen a lot. Hmm. And on the other side, too, if stock trending down, all of a sudden the relative ratio is starting to improve. In fact, I mean, this is the environment now with the market correcting where you look for names like that. You know, where the relative chart's improving, meaning that, oh my gosh, you know, the S&P's corrected 10%, this stock's only down five. All right, why is that? Is there something going on fundamentally I need to look into? And that's, and that gets, you know, the fundamental analyst thinking. And if I was doing more fundamental work, it would tell me, all right, I really got to look at these companies to see, hey, what's going on? Are estimates coming up or are the revisions improving or, you know what I mean? So, you know, I think that's how not only, not only a good way, A, to interact with some of the institutional client base, but also... And, and private client base as well, but also just as a process, because technical analysis is, is nothing, you know, without fundamentals. I mean, technical analysis, somebody once coined it lazy man's fundamental work, you know, and, and uh, free riding on other people's <laughs> number cruncher. Because think about it. I mean, you know, if a stock's rallying, it's doing it for a fundamental reason mm-hmm. most of the time. I mean, and you may not know what it is. But you can identify the footprints in the charts. I mean, think about where we were a year ago. 100% of economists calling for a recession and the market rallies. Past 20, two years, right? I mean, that's been ongoing, the calls for recession. And guess what? I mean, guess when the market started correcting? When people started taking those calls off the table and calling for a soft landing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as, you know, as the market was rallying, it was telling us something. And then as soon as the economist started confirming what it was telling us, that's when it corrected. So now we need to see what event that we're discounting now. And hopefully eventually, you know, we discount it completely and things can you know, get a little bit better. Huh, really interesting. You know? Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the current market environment. We're recording this Halloween 2023. Um, Where are we today? Are we in a a secular bull market or bear market? Are we in a cyclical bull or bear? What's the state of equity markets and bond markets today? Well, I mean, I I, um, keep it simple with those sort of trends. So 
you know, whenever we go on television, we always pull up the same chart, S&P 500, with a 40-week moving average and a 200-week moving average. The 40-week moving average, for those who look more at daily charts, can associate that with a 200-day moving average. So we gauge the cyclical trend of the market using the 40-week moving average, and we gauge the secular trend as the 200-week moving average. So when you have a rising 40-week moving average, which we do now, mm-hmm. and a rising 200-week moving average, which we do now, the pattern is a cyclical uptrend or bull market and a secular uptrend or bull market. Where are we now in the context of that, given the 10% pullback that we've gotten since the July highs? It is a correction of that pattern. The We are below the 40-week moving average around 4250 so that's on the S and P. That's on the S and P five hundred. Yes. What about uh, how how does the Nasdaq look? A little uh, stronger. 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 Yeah. I mean, uh, so when we look at the the Nasdaq one hundred, for instance, it is still. I mean, it just tested the forty week moving average last week. So, and well above the two hundred week moving average. So still stronger. If you look at relative strength charts, um, you know the. The Nasdaq 100 still has a stronger pattern than the S&P at this stage. Hmm. Technology, you know, the sector itself, the technology still has a stronger relative chart pattern. It's been sideways, but in a stronger trend. And, you know, you look at the RRG on Bloomberg, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, R- Which is for, R-R-G for listeners. Go. Yep. <laughs> you get for listeners, the, what what is that what does that chart show you? Oh, it's a great it's a great it's a great tool actually. I think I, I use it a lot in my work. RRG stands for relative rotation graph. Mm-hmm. And what it's telling us now is that some of the, the cyclical sectors, like financials, materials, industrials, they had a chance to rotate into a bigger leadership position and mm-hmm. failed. Where, and technology and discretionary and comm services had a chance to rotate into a more bearish leadership position and did not do that. So looking at that, it's like you just got to think about what is the risk here you know, to investors that are you know, uh, looking to get more part, not not participation, but more alpha in the market from a greater number mm-hmm. of stocks. The risk is that doesn't happen if this pattern holds. The risk is that tech can continue to lead, comm services can continue to lead, and these cyclical sectors can continue to lag since they weren't able to take on the mantle of relative re- leadership in, in, the, in the relative rotation graph. So they, they were not able to move into an uptrend. And the, so industrials have looked like they've been on the verge for a while. They have. Ha- hasn't happened. Hasn't happened. On the other hand, same with financials. Financials, same thing. Looks like, oh, I, now there's some spread. Financials can make more money. Hasn't really happened. On the other hand, energy seems to really be cleaning itself up. What What's going on in the oil sector? Yeah, so that's, that's the one cyclical sector that has started to work. In fact, it does look an awful lot like the pattern that we had for that on a relative basis, meaning outperformance uh, off the, 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 the low relative low from 98 to 2000. And that relative uptrend continues. 98 to two, like we're looking back 25 years, 20 plus years. And it was a similar pattern that we have now. And it's, it's maybe a third of the way through it. Wow. Because that, if that continues, you know, energy should be able to outperform if, if history rhymes. Right. Um, I mean, the oil chart, it looks like it could be building a base. You know, it broke out and moved back and retested some some levels of support. But yeah, you know, we'll see how that pattern develops. I mean, you know, I mean, but it does it does have more of a a, a look of uh, 
building a base within an uptrend for that. So if that does work and oil stays stable to higher, energy should work uh, to some extent. I mean, obviously this week or last couple of weeks, there's been some M&A activity where some, right. some of the bigger names started to get hit a little harder, but it didn't derail the sector at all. Huh, interesting. Uh, I couldn't help but notice that very quietly, a lot of cryptocurrency, uh, most specifically Bitcoin, hit new 52-week highs. Nobody's talking about that, really. What does that mean when not only a particular stock or asset hits a 52-week high, but it seems to be off the ra below right. the radar? What, what, do you, how, what do you make of that? Well, I can't talk about Bitcoin. I don't think I'm allowed to do that uh, at VFA <laughs> Securities, of course. Um, I, but uh, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, if, and, that, and we're seeing that in, in, you know, in other areas of the market as well. Um, no, it just means nobody's there. <laughs> nobody cares. And which is now is that bullish or bearish? If nobody I mean, cares that something's making a fifty-two week high, that might mean a lot more people uh, could come into that space. Right. Forget Bitcoin. Anytime we're talking any, about any, any type a quiet fifty-two yeah. week high. I mean, it happened. I think it probably happened with the energy names not long ago. You know, coming off the lows of twenty twenty. You know, they they moved up a lot. Oh, it's already up thirty percent. Well, it went up another fifty percent after that. You know what I mean? That's that's people people actually have that argument. Mm -hmm. Oh, I missed it, so I'm going to wait for it to dip, and it doesn't dip. I mean, that's what happens in that sort of environment. You know, when when you start to see that happen. So, I'm, I'm sure over the next few weeks, there's going to be patterns developing in other pockets of the market where things that have been left. I mean, I don't want to use the term left for dead, but I guess that's the only term. It's Halloween, so it might as well. Right. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, they can rally quickly 20, 30%, and people are like, oh, I missed it. And then three months later, it's up another 20 or 30%. I mean, that that's the pat that's the way those patterns tend to work. You, you mentioned Halloween. What What's the scariest chart you've seen recently? <laughs> um, well, I... What I don't like, there's one breath indicator and I don't like right now. And it's just, I mean, hopefully. What's the breath indicator? It's the percentage of stocks above 200 day moving averages. They had some bullish divergences in the summer and they broke to new, um, you know, year to date lows. Mm -hmm. Now. And you don't like that? I, I, it just, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we have to, let's see if they get back to, you know, oversold levels. But, you know. Yeah, that's that's something that's a bit challenging, you know. But they, again, I think it all has to do with the fact that you know the equal weighted index has been lagging the cap weighted index pretty much all year. You're anticipating my next question. What does it mean when you have this divergence between the S and P 500, the way we think of it as market cap weighted, versus the um, what is it SPW, the yep, that's right. equal cap weighted? Uh, that that divergence is about as big as it's ever ever gets. I mean, and that is a scary chart when you look at it relative to the S and P. Scary because if the technicals work on this, there's still more underperformance coming for that. The pattern, meaning that if you look at the pattern going back a decade or more, there is a potential that the equated index is forming what would be called a head and shoulders top versus mm -hmm. the S and P, the the cap weighted index. I hope it doesn't work because in our firm, you know, we have uh, strategists that you know want, want to see the equal weight at work, and I think it would probably be healthier for the market if it did work. It, it suggests that the market is relatively narrow at, at present, right? Right. If, if, I mean, if the cap weighted is radically outperforming the equal weighted, it means the biggest twenty stocks are the drivers. Yeah, that's where you're getting your alpha. I mean, 
in terms of market breadth itself, I mean, the advanced decline line on the S&P went to an all-time high over the summer. Should so be bullish, right? It, it should be bullish. Um, and it, it gets worrisome when, in my world, when this lack of performance for equal weight versus cap weight leads to weakening breadth indicators, which is why that percentage of stocks above 200-day moving average seems scary to me. Um, now, I will say, when you look at the equal weighted versus cap weighted ratio lagging, uh, equal weight lagging cap weighted. Mm -hmm. Guess what period of time that happened in the past where the equity market was really strong? 1994 to 2000. Yeah, right. That 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 yeah. uh, that was all driven by the biggest tech companies at the time. And, and also, right? I, I I think pharma was involved in that too, mm -hmm. um, and and other large cap stocks. Here's the other interesting thing. You look at the S&P 100 index right now. Mm -hmm. It does appear to be breaking out from a multi-year bottom versus the S&P, meaning mega caps leading large caps. The last time we saw a breakout like that was 1998. I find it curious that it's hap that's happening and the equal weight lagging the, the cap weighted because in the late 90s, or the mid-late 90s, the Fed did hike rates quite a bit. Right. And then they took some off and then hiked into, you know, 99-2000 with this environment for these particular names. So it just seems to me with these particular, uh, st you know, size fra fragments working better than others. So mega cap market potentially um, at this point, just looking at this, if it changes, I'll change. You know, I'll change my view pretty quickly if it starts to change. But right now... You know, I, I, I know a lot of people really want to see more alpha generated by more stocks, um, but there's a risk it doesn't happen. But I do think instead of being the Magnificent Seven, maybe it's a Nifty 50 <laughs> because the OEX is breaking out. Well, well, we also know how the Nifty 50 ended. So, uh, <laughs> But it takes time. You know, right, it takes right, time. It and a lot longer than people think. I mean, I'm sure people were calling for a bubble in 1998, right. and you had a huge run-up. Irrational exuberance, 96. 96. You had a long, time, long way to go. You, you mentioned the Fed raising rates. Let's talk about the bond market. What do you see in, in treasuries and the fixed income half of the portfolio? Well, I mean, obviously, that's not my call as the equity uh, strategist at right. BFA. But um, when you look at the 10-year yield, uh, the view is a, a secularized in interest rate. And, and if I'm putting on my equity hat and I have to say, all right, what was the last time you had interest rates rising from, you know, levels around 1%? I mean, here we went a lot lower during COVID, mm -hmm. obviously. But mid-1940s, so 1946 into 66, a 20-year rise from about one and a half to about five seven five uh -huh. over twenty years. It's about about this maybe a little smaller than the current range. Right. You know the 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 interesting thing is I mean if COVID didn't happen where would your yield low be? It's either two thousand twelve or sixteen. You know what I mean? So so I mean maybe this secularizing yields is a little longer than people think it is. Mm -hmm. But I mean again the market did drop on on the ten year note yield to like what point three on the ten during COVID. So and this is and you look at the yield chart, it's like the fastest rise we've ever gotten. So if we are going to follow, you know, that period in the 50s, I mean, right now, I think we're probably, I mean, if I'm looking at stocks and overlaying it with interest rates and just trying to think about how it most, you know, where we are in that particular analog, it's probably late 50s, early 60s in, in some regard. We've been secular bulls. 
But what is not a characteristic of, of a secular bull? It's interest rates above five seven five, and it's inflation, you know, surging again. You know, we can't yeah. have that happen. It's very interesting when I get people asking me stuff like, "When is the market going to get back to normal?" I'm like, well, define normal. Well, interest rates need to be lower, you know, 1%. I'm like, well, that's not, that's normal. not normal. Right. And, you know, I find so, out these so guys have been in normal, business. Right? 5 6% is pretty normal. I mean, the average 10-year note yield going back to 1920, if, you know, looking at the data, is around mm-hmm. 4.7 right. so, so. so we're a little elevated. We're but right not, there. We're right but there. But not, not terrible, right? We're, we're, we're now, kissing five as we record this. What's a quarter point between friends, right? It's not... <laughs> It's not, that that's a couple of days of, of you know wild trading action. Right. So I mean that, I mean look I mean you can get a return on your cash, which mm-hmm. is great. A lot of people have taken advantage of that. So it, you know the other factor is I mean when is that record level of cash going to be put to work in stocks? You know, I mean with people making five to six percent on money market funds, it's it's going to take a little bit more, which is by design. You know the Fed. Wanted people to take on risk with rates at zero. And now, you know, they don't want people to take on as much risk in, in some regard. So it's going to take a little more confidence, you know, in equities to, because you get your, your hurdle rates higher, you know. so That makes sense. So, I mean, I, it, that's the reason why I think we are moving into a more normal environment. We're actually getting a really normal type of correction rather than something that lasts only, you know, three to 5%. We're getting a normal 10% plus type of pullback. You, you mentioned um, uh, how COVID changed when what the lows were in, in the bond market. Uh, there's a fascinating piece in The Economist this week about in the post-COVID world, sentiment data has you know just gone off the rails. In fact, if you look at the bottom of the sentiment data in 2022, uh, and I've been struggling with this for a while, worse than the 87 crash, worse than the dot-com implosion, worse than September 11th, worse than the great financial crisis, and worse than the COVID lockdowns. What do you make of this wildly noisy sentiment data? So wait, which which data points were? So um, the COVID I, ones I believe worse. it was the, the, the University of Michigan uh, sentiment data. And it, now it was worse during COVID it, than it, any other period. No, 2022, it oh. hit a record low, worse than COVID, worse than GFC, worse than Dot coms, just unprecedented levels that we've never seen. Uh, the Economist is implying COVID just disrupted our sense of the world. It probably did. It probably did to some extent. And I think, you know, in 2022, you started. I mean, I mean, you're already in a bear market from peaks in 2021. Mm-hmm. You already had indicators topping out in 2021 in the middle of the year, and then late in the year. So we were well entrenched with economists looking for, you know. Uh, you know, a massive hard landing at that point. So it would make sense that sentiment would be off the rails to some extent, um, you know, given given that outlook. Make, makes some sense. Uh, you you frequently use a phrase that cracks me up uh, in, in your research. Uh, let's discuss your indicators, the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> One of my favorite movies of all time. Looking at the world that's out there today, what's good, what's bad, what's ugly? Right. So, yeah, we, we just you know, wanted to be a little tongue in cheek with some of our stuff here. So so we, we noticed that the percentage of stocks above 50 day moving averages on the S&P actually did not go to a lower low as the S&P went to a lower low uh, just last Friday. So that has the potential to be good, you know, maybe triggers a seasonal rally. Um, another indicator we threw in there was the 
Um, I think they, they call it the NAAIM uh, exposure index that around 24% versus oversold in the low 20s. Mm-hmm. That's getting closer. So, so exposure among asset managers and market participants in equities is a lot lower than it was. So a lot of the I mean, I always use the term, a lot of the froth has been blown off the cappuccino, mm-hmm. you know, over the last three <laughs> months. So those are, you know, those are some, you know, better looking indicators. Um, I would argue that when you look at the Chicago Fed Financial Conditions Index, it's held in like a champ. So that's another. What does that mean? Well, it just means financial conditions aren't deteriorating, mm-hmm. you know, to any great extent based on that indicator. Um, you know, which is an indicator I like to use. Credit markets haven't blown out either, you know, so that's. That you know, spreads haven't blown out either, at least on the. And option. there, people were warning that that was about to happen in the spring when Silicon Valley Bank right. and First Republic blew up. This is it. You're going to see credit markets turn go upside down, and that'll be it for equities. Not so much. Right? Not so much. I mean, the corporate BAA to ten year spread is one I look at a lot. Meaning investment grade to just below investment grade. Um, I it, it's the uh, ten year spread versus that. So right. I'm looking at the lowest tier of investment grade versus the 10-year yield. Versus the treasury, gotcha. Yep. And what I'm trying to say is, all right, when does stuff start to creep into investment grade, you know, the lower tier? And it hasn't happened. I mean, that is well hmm. below 2%. Um, and when you get above 2.5, that's when things really start to, to let's, struggle. Let's talk about your sector work. How do you utilize different sectors and, and how does that work into your overall approach to macro? Well, I mean, the sectors, I mean, this is, this is, I, I've been shying away from having bold sector calls this year. And the reason why is you can find bullish and bearish stock charts everywhere, mm-hmm. no matter what sector you're looking at, um, even utilities. You know, what what does it bad. mean when a sector is strong and an individual company is weak? Is it just reflecting that company? How, how do you draw a conclusion from that? No, I mean, what you want to see, I mean, sure, that's a good question. So, well, you know, if you have a bullish sector, I mean, I would argue tech is still tech and comm services is still in quite bullish position. Mm-hmm. So, if if you have a stock in a bullish sector that's not acting well, t- chances are it's an idiosyncratic problem with that stock or chart. Um, you know, probably a fundamental reason for it too, more so mm-hmm. than a technical reason, because you know the technicals are reflecting the fundamental situation to some extent. Um, so, I, I mean, I think right now, just looking at sectors and looking at you know, the way things look on the relative price charts along with the absolute price charts, it seems like, you know, tech is holding in fine. Com services holding in fine. Semiconductors trying to hold their trend. Mm-hmm. Um, industrials, you know, trying, but, you know, not, not really convincing. Energy holding in just fine. Materials, it depends on the stock. You can find some winners, find some losers. Mm-hmm. And financials, it's, it's really challenging because... You know, you know, two things. One, the absolute chart looks okay as long as it can hold those prior highs from 2007, which it has done. Um, but the relative chart, not okay. Um, but within that group, you can find winners in things like exchanges and stuff like that mm-hmm. that look really strong relative to the laggards of the group, which just happened to be you know, the sector near and dear to my heart, the banks, you know, it's like, you know, just not given, because you work for a bank, <laughs> just, just the sector you happen to happen to really like. Right. I mean, I mean, why not? I mean, it's like, you know, it's, you know, you, you want to see your companies, you know, yeah, do well, of course, you know, it's like, so, so let's talk about the macro. Um, what goes into what you look at most when you're doing an overall view of the equity markets? 
Yeah. So, I mean, one of my favorite indicators, and I would lump it in with the good, would be mm-hmm. the 73 country index of market breadth. So, the advanced decline line for 73 country indices. The U.S. is one of those. So it's not just looking at the domestic equity right. markets. You want to see the whole world doing well at once. Yes, and that advanced decline line broke out during the summer. And even though the market correction has taken a lot of indices below their summer breakout points, this particular advanced decline line remains above its breakout point, meaning that there are pockets of the world that are working better than others mm-hmm. you know, um, out there. So, yeah, I think, I think that's important to point out. And... and, and so global breadth hasn't rolled over. So it tells us that we're in a corrective phase within what could very well be a market that may yet have another up leg to it, not just in the U.S., but also, you know, globally. So since we're talking about uh, global, um, the world always is kind of a scary place. Lately, you flip on the news, geopolitics is everywhere. It's Russia and the Ukraine. It's the things that are going on in Israel. Uh, it's the economy in Um, Europe, and especially China, seems to be falling into its own problems. How do you think about all these big geopolitical events, or do you not? It's really either in the charts or not. No, I would say it's the latter. It's in the charts or not. Um, So, I mean, put it this way. Market is a discounting mechanism, and sometimes it it discounts things in advance, of course, but when things are a surprise, it discounts things quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the way to think about it. Um, and what's interesting, I, I've noted, I mean, maybe there's a little bit of gold taking on its old-fashioned... Safe you know, harbor, safe harbor panic, here. a little apop- apocalyptic um, currency. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the research that, you know, my colleague puts out, you know, Paul Siana, I mean, there's like a huge base on gold, you know, that, that if it ever breaks out, it can go up a lot. Right. And the... The, the events of the world have enhanced that pattern a little bit. So the question I have for your colleague is, hey, the past decade saw a lot of really crazy things happen, and gold you know, caught a little bit of a bid, but never really could get out of its own way. Um, I, in fact, I don't think it got over the 2008-9 highs. What, what do we make it, of gold yeah. sort of forming this long, is this a base or is this a top? Um, no, I, it looks like the mother of all cup and handles, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, a coin and define what there. a cup and handle yep. pattern looks like. Yeah. I'm going to define it because it's like, it's, it's Bill O'Neill coined it. Right. Right. So the cup, the handle, the cup is this big rounding type of base mm-hmm. stock rally. Sometimes it goes to a new high, which it did. So it did go above where it was briefly. Well, right. Yeah. A few times though. Now you have three probes up and then and a probe down. So you got the cup. And now you're forming the handle. Mm-hmm. And the handle's a lot uh, shallower in terms of price decline. Meaning buyers are coming in buyers at, come higher in at prices. higher prices. Meaning that there's demand for gold at higher prices. Mm-hmm. And if this technical formation works, I mean, and, and gold can clear those hives that have occurred over the last uh, three, four, five years, um, then you got the pattern. And you can go much higher than where gold is today if we do complete that pattern. And gold was interesting, too, because uh, if I put my equity hat on and look at gold the way I look at a stock, it it tagged its 200-week moving average perfectly, rising 200-week moving average, which means secular uptrend, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, even though gold is consolidated. 
uh, it just lends more confidence that the pattern we're in now is more more likely to break higher than break down. And and you know just looking at just evidence based type of technical analysis. And you mentioned um, towards the end of twenty one there were lots of warning signs. What what did the technicals say about twenty twenty two? And let's let's revisit the June and October twenty twenty two bottoms. Mm-hmm. What were the technicals saying then? Sure. So. So we, we put out our year ahead for 2022. Buckle up. It's going to be a rocky a rocky year. That's a pretty good pretty good call. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, I, it was yeah, I, I, I felt good about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, when you when you're looking at credit spreads peaking in the summer, you're looking mm-hmm. at financial conditions, uh, you know, hitting their best levels in the summer 2021 and then deteriorating through the end of the year. When you're looking at the percentage of stocks about 200 day moving averages diverging for six months. Um, you know, a few other indicators I could point out, but it's a laundry list. And the S&P going to a new high in January, whereas the NASDAQ 100, NASDAQ comp topped out in November, it's telling you something's going on. And it just suggested to us that uh, the rally that we've gotten from the COVID lows was at risk and we we're entering into a corrective phase. And, you know, we were targeting levels like 3,800, and we also threw out the 200-week uh, moving average, which, you know, when it eventually tested, it was like 3490, you know, around 3500 on the 200-week moving uh-huh. average. So, so that was the pattern. And then we looked at, you know, 2020 throughout the year, uh, 2022, and you did hit a nice low in June. And you were able to rally, and then guess what happened? You stalled at a declining 40-week, 200-day moving average in August. And then you went down and undercut the June low. Um, I just would, by a little bit. And I would say that was a nice retest of that low. There were some indicators. I believe the 14-week RSI had a higher low, meaning price momentum improved, even though the S&P went to a lower low. So it was so that was a positive. I believe there were also fewer new 52-week lows. And the other ingredient was, that we just talked about earlier, um, versus, you know, versus June and November, you actually started to see the dollar peak and yields peak in October. So that helped the market stabilize and bottom out. So was there capitulation? Because that's what a lot of people, you know, hung up on. We didn't get the capitulation in, in, in October 2022. And I would argue we did. The one indicator I would point to, to support two indicators. First, AAII bears went to the highest level, the most bears since early 2009. That's pretty, pretty big level. That's a huge level. So that's one. And the other one is that three-month VIX versus VIX went below one late September, early October of 2022 to suggest to us that the tactical medium-term, you know, momentum of uh, medium-term sentiment did capitulate. So bears capitulated from institution, uh, from uh, retail investors uh-huh. and the three-month VIX versus VIX moved below one to suggest, uh, you know, capitulation on that indicator. And the other thing that was very interesting about October of last year was that entering the month, we had two extraordinarily bullish breath days, 90% up days on the NYSE in a row. And, and that helped solidify a bottom too, even though the first few sessions after that, it gave up all the rally from those two days, right. but the market did find support you know, with those days. So it was a very complicated market. Normally when you get those two types of things, you just rip to the upside, but it's just so volatile now, you know? So, so let's sum up the, the secular view uh, of the markets. Uh, 
We had a 34% downturn in 2020 during the pandemic. The rest of the year from those lows, I think we were plus 68%. The following year, plus 29%. And then we come into 2022. Where are we broadly? Have we been in a cyclical uh, correction within a longer secular bull market? Is is that how you're describing this? And and if we are, how long could Mm -hmm. that secular bull market run for? Yeah, so this is a great question. So first... The, the view of the 2022 correction was secular, uh, cyclical, cyclical correction, secular bull market. We made comparisons with the Eurozone crisis in 2012, very similar to that. Uh-huh. Uh, also 2016 Brexit and the election that year. Right. And trade war in 2019. And one can even argue uh, COVID 2020, similar setup where you went down tested the 200-week MA, cross above the 40-week, and then corrected to undercut the 40-week. You did it twice. Twice in 2012, once once prior to the summer rally and once prior to the year-end rally, 2012. 2016, you hit it right when the Brexit vote happened, and then boom, ripped into a summer rally. Fall correction, year-end rally after uh, Trump got elected president in 2016. And then China trade war, two similar type of, of dips, one in the right ahead of the summer rally and one ahead of the year-end rally. So here we go. We had one in March, which was a little early, but mm-hmm. it happened. You rallied above the 40-week, then moved below it, and then rallied back above it by the time you're in April, and you got a nice summer rally. And then right on cue, seasonality always says, going back to 1928, well, you know, seasonality says, going back to 1928, the worst three-month period of the year is August through October, and that's exactly what's going on right here. We're getting that traditional correct, correction, which usually precedes the best three-month periods of the year of November through January. So... So I think that's where we are now. So we could very well be ending this uh, cyclical correction soon if we follow seasonal patterns. Now, how long can the secular bull market last? Well, there's a financial advisor who helped me coin this term. Um, I guess he was a Marilyn Monroe fan, the seven-year itch. (laughs) Uh So seven years after the breakout of 2013 was COVID and the market hit a spike low. And 34% is normally considered a pretty substantial bear market. I mean, the only other one in a secular bull trend that matched it was the 87 crash. And guess mm-hmm. what? 87, seven years after the 80 breakout. So seven year itch there. I call it halftime. You know, not everybody knows Marilyn Monroe. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, I did a Jaws reference in one of my uh, morning call appearances, you know, talking about how the market needed to build a bigger base. (laughs) We're going to need a bigger base. And sure (laughs) enough, I bet you that trading floor probably Google, what's Jaws? Because no, (laughs) think think of the average age down there. But bottom line is this, and I just digress. So let me get back to what I was talking about. So uh, the seven-year low, 87, bull market lasted until uh, 2000. Then 57, 50 breakout in the S&P, above the 37 high. And and then you rallied... um, into, you know, prior to 1957, had a correction in 1957, which was recession and a pandemic. <laughs> so go figure. And then right. that lasted another uh, nine years. So, I mean, if I'm just saying, hey, midpoint 2020 from 2013, maybe it lasts until 2027. But some of these other bull markets lasted longer. Maybe I have to get a little bit of haircut given where inflation and interest rates are. I mean, mm-hmm. that's quite a possibility. Sure. Um in fact, I mean, for order order for the secular call to really work, I mean, let's face it, inflation does need to come down, um, and 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 sh- and cannot spike, you know, 
10, 12%. I mean, if it does, that's not what happens during secular bull markets. Mm-hmm. You know, what, uh, you know, the 1950s secular bull market started with, you know, inflation high and then it went down and stayed fairly contained. You know, higher interest rates, not what you want to see. I mean, you know, 1980s, sure, it started with interest rates double digits, but our friend Volcker, you know, did what he needed to do and, and solved that problem. Uh, rates went down. So, you know, 10-year note yield is trending through 5.5, 5.75, and inflation's going back up. You know, I think it's going to be very difficult for this secular bull trend to be sustained because it hasn't happened before. It doesn't mean it can't happen, but I can't find, you know, go, you know any history to support that case. Huh, really interesting. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, what follows the worst three months of the year. You mentioned August, September, October uh, tends to be seasonally the worst part of the year. I- I've seen all sorts of explanations for why that is. Uh, harvest, people distracted with summer vacation, going back to school, whatever it is, the last three months tend to be pretty good. What are the odds that we're going to see Santa Claus come to Wall Street? <laughs> I hope they're pretty good. Um, first and foremost, when you know we use traditional seasonality work, so traditional seasonality, what does it tell you? You know, everybody talks about sell in May and go away. But do you ever see anybody go on the media and say, hey, buy in October and stay? <laughs> they don't because that doesn't sell. Right? And it doesn't rhyme. That's You know it's true when it <laughs> rhymes. That's the key. Yeah, that's true. Buy in October The trend is your friend. If, if there's no rhyme there, it's no good. <laughs> Except for the bend at the end, of course. Yeah. But it's really what's really funny about it is, I mean, November starts the best three and six month periods of the year for the S&P, mm-hmm. which I think going back to 1928 is really encouraging for those looking for the market to stabilize. But when you think about where we are in the presidential cycle, we're in year three. So year th- year two to year three has the best part of the cycle from you know fourth quarter year two, which was last year around mm-hmm. this time through the middle of year three. So and we fought, we did that perfectly. Mm-hmm. And now we're, you know, we're doing the getting ready for year four. We're getting ready for year four. But right here, right now, uh, it's tough in year three, August, September, October, November. Mm-hmm. So seasonality might be pushed into December. We could struggle into November because that can happen in the third year of the presidential cycle. Mm-hmm. So in the third year of the presidential cycle, 
positive Q4 performance is typically a Santa Claus rally event. Hmm. So, and then the next part of the cycle calls for a choppy pattern into May of next year. Mm -hmm. But then you follow traditional seasonal patterns, summer rally, fall dip, and correction, uh, and, and, and rally after the election. And it doesn't matter who wins or loses. I mean, in 2016, everybody thought Trump was a disaster. Everybody thought Biden was a disaster. And the contested election was a disaster. Market both both cases, market did well, right? Market right did after. well. So, so I think, um, you know, granted, I mean, that, that we're, in, we're in an interesting period of time here where it may take a bit longer for the market to stabilize. But I do think if we follow, you know, the, 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 the pattern work, December should be good. So let's talk about another sort of historical pattern, not quite seasonal. Uh, I've seen a lot of studies that suggest when the Fed finishes its rate hiking cycle, uh, um, shortly thereafter, we're off to the races in the equity side. It almost feels like the market isn't sure if the Fed is done. And once once the market is comfortable, hey, we're, we're done raising rates, the, the next leg up can begin. Uh, does that sound reasonable? Or what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it, it does sound reasonable. I mean, clarity around when that final ha uh, rate cut's happening probably would be helpful. I mean, I think that's one reason why the market is struggling a little bit, because there's that last hike just sitting out there creating uncertainty. Plus, you have a lot of Fed governors jawboning back and forth. It doesn't seem like there's a consensus there yet. Yes. I mean, the, the, you know, my, my dad was a bond guy all his life, and he... He told me FOMC stands for Federal Open Mouth Committee, meaning they talk a lot and sometimes confuse markets. Fun. And back in the day when he was trading bonds, they didn't tell you what they were doing either at the Fed meetings. You had to figure it out from price action. They, they, they didn't even <laughs> announce that. People exactly. don't realize when you talk about some people who have only been in the business for 10 or 20 years, the Fed didn't even tell you we're hiking rates. You would just have to see what would take place in the in the bond market. Suddenly it's like, Hey, who's uh, who's buying all these equities or who's selling all these bonds? You you had to figure out what was going on. I mean, we are spoon fed, that's for sure. I mean, then you know, I don't know what whether that's a good or bad thing. I mean, you know, again, I mean, information just comes at us so quickly, quickly digested. You got machines that help you digest the information and and do and make trading decisions. But yeah, the environment has definitely gotten you know, more complicated. I mean, my dad, when taking the train back in the day, he wasn't getting emails on the, you know, he could, he could actually play bridge with a few other guys on the train, you know? So, so let me, <laughs> let me ask you a related question to that, um, uh, about the, the Fed spoon feeding us. Say what you will about Jerome Powell and, and the Federal Reserve. He said, we're going to raise rates. And he started raising rates. In fact, he said, we're going to raise rates aggressively to com combat Inflation. Now, we could say they were a little late to the party. They should have started a year earlier. But hold that aside. It seems like the equity market didn't believe the Fed chairman when he said, uh, hold my beer. Watch what I'm about to do with rates. Nobody seemed to believe him. Well, I mean, I think it's good that the equity market was able to, you know, I mean, obviously at first it corrected, but able to rally again, because again, I mean, you know, people say, hey, rates are, they're increasing rates drastically. And I'm like, no, I would, I would not, I would call it normalization of rates. You know, I, you know, I, I think that's, that's a fair, fair really phrase. what's going on. It's not, it's not, I mean, it is aggressively hiking. They did, but they got it to a more normalized level. 
So I, I, and I, you know, again, I mean, is it normal to get a return on cash investments? The answer to that question, I would argue, is yes. So this is the most normal environment we've been in in a long time. Which is kind of crazy to think about the previous two decades were abnormal. And think about everybody who's, you know, first started investing in these 20 years. Uh, you had a 10-year bear market, right, from 2000 to, uh, I don't know, call it 2012, 2013, um, uh, is is this normal or is this normalizing? Where uh, we may not quite be at normal yet, are we? Well, we'll see. I mean, it, it takes time to really figure that one out. But um, you know, I, I think I think we're a lot more normal than we were ten years ago. You mentioned different um, market cycles in the fifties and the sixties. You use a lot of historical references. Um, how informative is going back decades or centuries? The world was so different, right. you know, in an era of telegraphs and railroads. Can we really carry forward um, lessons from that era, from chart action to, to the modern world? I mean, I think you can. Um, the primary reason you can is because the dynamics of human nature and fear and greed haven't changed. Now, people will say, well, there's more mechanical trading this, you know, these days with high-frequency trading and things like that. I'm like, well, who created the programs? You right. know? Who's writing those algos? It's, it's human beings who created it. So, I mean, there is a human element touching all of that. So maybe if we're coming back in 10 years, 20 years, and, and the machines are creating things, then maybe we have a different argument to talk about. But one would think if the machines were working the market, it wouldn't be as emotional as it is. And, yet, and it is very emotional. It, it very much is. You know, it's funny. Um, I read a book a while ago, I think it was published in the 1920s, by uh, Richard Wyckoff, How I Trade Stocks. Mm -hmm. And uh, what was so shocking was, okay, it was about railroads and telephone companies, but you could swap in internet right. and technology, and nothing is different. It reads as if it was written mm -hmm. last month. It's it's really quite fascinating. That is human nature, isn't it? Exactly. It, progress, I guess, is the term. I mean, maybe maybe we fear, greed, and progress. And I hope progress continues. <laughs> you know, I mean, look. I mean, maybe this is maybe the secular driver of this is is the AI theme, or you know, things like that. Because every secular bull trend has some sort of theme behind it. You huh. would think. Give us some examples. I, I like the concept of that. Well, um, well, I mean, you know, obviously, I think the '50s was more of a build back after World War II. Post war, type. right? And and for for people who may not know their history, you had the build out of the interstate highway, highway. system. Yep. Eisenhower. You yep. had the rise of suburbia, the mm -hmm. rise of automobile com com companies, um, and the commercialization of passenger air travel. And the electronic industry. There were a lot of things that took place in the 50s and 60s that drove everything forward. Every time we have a secular bull market, do you see something similar there to that? There should be. Yeah. I mean, I think so. I mean, because the 80s, you know, if, you know, I guess Technology, the birth telecom, of the, the computer sure. and things Internet, like that. Internet, sure. And then, yeah, exactly. Mobile. You know, you just, that that 20-year period saw a lot of new industries pop into existence. And then when it gets too exciting, such as the tech bubble, that's when things change. And it doesn't seem like we're there now because um, we talked about these indicators peaking out in advance of the market in 2021. I don't really have that here, you know, mm. as we're on this corrective phase. Except for the, the percentage of stocks with 200-day moving averages, that does have the divergence. But credit spreads confirm the rally. Uh, financial conditions confirm the rally. You know, a lot of other indicators confirm the rally. So, you know, there's 
you know, a little different than say two years ago at this point. So, so I'm glad you brought that up. I, I want to talk about uh, what you call the magnificent seven and uh, uh, and compare it to prior eras. When you take the seven biggest companies on the SP 500, their revenues collectively are something like 1.8 trillion dollars. Their profits are a quarter of a trillion dollars. Put on your CFA hat for a moment, and let me ask you, hey, they're a disproportionate part of the S&P 500 with good reason. Right. Is that a fair statement? We, we've never seen any group of seven companies make so much in revenue and so much in profits. How wrong is it that these are you know, the, the darling stocks? It might not be wrong. And quite frankly, I would argue that could very well be a factor of a secular bull market. And here's why. During secular bull markets, what outperforms? Large caps or small caps? Large caps. You know? They're international. They have a broader reach. They have great access to capital. Uh, Small caps graduate. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Graduate to mid caps. Mid caps graduate to large caps. Large caps become... Big caps. So, you know, the interesting thing is like in the equal weight, you know, had its best period during the 2000 to 2013 bear market for equity. Mm-hmm. So one would argue that having a greater concentration, you know, not not to the extent I mean, I, you know, magnif- maybe it's magnificent 50, maybe it's magnificent 100 going forward. I mean, that I would take that as a bullish sign if, if we went from the seven to the 20, maybe even more. But but you're rewarding the winners, and and you know I guess that's capitalism for you in some regard, you know. Mm-hmm. So, makes makes a lot of sense. Before we get to our favorite questions, let me throw you one curveball. You 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 do both broad analysis, and I don't know if I would call them just outright market calls, but you certainly share opinions um, about where we are and where we could go. What were some of your most memorable calls that have stayed with you? Um, what do you What do you remember most fondly, and what are you uh, not so keen on uh, prior calls? Well, I mean, I, I think the secular bull market call has been a great one uh, since. Uh, what are 20, the dates of those? Twenty thirteen, mm-hmm. when we broke out, and twenty twelve, we broke out in the S and P uh, uh, in the Nasdaq. On twenty thirteen, on the S and P above the two thousand and fifteen seventies. Yep. Exactly. 07 highs, yep. And you know, that was that was that was really the big call. And a ton of pushback, right? I remember 2013 people were like, "No, no, no, this is just a bear market rally and it's going to end soon." Well, we did a radio show on that. I remember back in the day you and me talking about it and I was explaining, "Well, I mean, you know, a big trading range, a break out of it, you know, this is like 1950, 1980. It should continue for a while." Um, and, and it did for 7 years until COVID. I mean, the call I want to forget, though, is being so bold up on value over growth entering this year because, quite frankly, it looked like a classic double top that supported the case for value to be growth. And obviously that didn't work. So. That value did have a good couple, 21, 22, pretty good years compared to the prior decade. In fact, that might be the longest run we've seen of value underperforming growth until 21. Is that is that fair? Yes, I think so. It was. I think it bottomed out in 2006. So. And, you know, one would have thought that you would have seen a peak in that, you know, not 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 that you have to sell all your tech names and, and buy all the value names, because, you know, that is obviously not what you want to do. But but, yeah, it was surprising that that 
technical formation did not work. Hmm. Of you know a nice classic double top formation on uh, growth relative to value, a little bit surprising. And and the Nasdaq stalled. Uh, not the Nasdaq. The uh, the technology sector stalled at its 2000 high relative to the S&P entering this year. And then, of course, when growth versus value didn't work, I mean, when uh, value beating growth did not work and growth took the mantle leadership again, guess what happened? Tech broke out to all-time highs relative to the S&P going all the way back to 2000. I mean, maybe that's the message we need to take here. As long as that breakout's in, ta- in, in place, you know, how is, how is value going to beat growth? Huh, really, really interesting. All right, let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Uh, starting with, what have you been streaming these days? Give us your favorite podcast or Netflix, Amazon type of uh, shows. Sure. So in terms of TV shows and things like that, sure. I, I uh, well, I've been watching Loki on uh, Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, big Star Wars fan, so obviously I watch The Mandalorian, Ahsoka, um, I'm way behind on Ahsoka, so no. I will no not spoilers. say anything. Yeah, but it, it looked really the first couple episodes looked really interesting. Yeah, solid show. I mean, I'm into all those uh, superhero shows. Like, I mean, even some of the gory and raunchy ones, like The Boys. The on. Boys was great, and the second <laughs> season. You know, there's a third season coming. Also, I hope so. And now I'm watching this V University show or something like that with, with, with same same concept, same same people, mm-hmm. but um, young kids that are in school oh okay i saw a preview for that that looks interesting it's gory you know i I, so was the boys was totally gory yeah and then my you know of course i'm sitting oh this looks interesting it's about kids and you know splat and i'm like turned it on and all of a sudden oops let's turn that off (laughs) you know my my son was in the room he wasn't watching it but he was doing something else right and i'm like all right this come right off (laughs) so if if you like the boys um there are two shows that were on Amazon Prime that you might like. Um, I think everybody knows The Expanse was pretty popular. Yeah, I didn't see that one yet. It's a great sci-fi uh And that's series. right up my alley, too. But but something that's a little more eclectic and not well-known was Altered Carbon. It was only two seasons. Amazing. Yeah, last year I was into uh, Stranger... I got I went through... I binged Stranger Things. Uh-huh. How do you li- how'd you like that? Oh, I love that show because I was a 1980s Dungeons & Dragons kid. So And uh-huh. now I'm playing it now with my son and some of his friends. So COVID actually brought a few things out. You know, you, you got back into some old hobbies, you know, which was kind of fun. <laughs> During COVID, we, we broke out all of the kitchen appliances and wedding gifts that just had not been touched <laughs> like oh, that's fun. L- literally like the yonana things like that where you're putting frozen fruit into this device and turning it into that's so cool to, to oh, ice like cream that. and and the air fryers and it, it's really funny everybody went to the basement or garage or were at a storage room and pulled out the stuff that had been gathering dust for years it was that was the best part of covid yeah, i was, found uh, i found yeah my dungeon masters guy my player's handbook with the duct tape holding it together and my, you know <laughs> by the time yeah i mean you know my my son i taught my son out my daughter played for a little while but it wasn't her thing but right you know, and now now we're continuing a uh you know, i started a little club in town so we got a few people playing every other saturday so it's fun uh, it was a good thing to do that, that, that sounds like fun uh tell us about your mentors who helped shape your career yeah, sure. I mean, you know, obviously all the people I mentioned earlier in the podcast, of course, you know, my dad, Marianne Bartels, uh, 
you know, my boss at Waymar Huff, uh, Stefan Haberer, very, very, you know, helped me, you know, steer, you know, again, in the fundamental side of the business, you know. Um, as far as like technical strat analysts and things like that, books I've read, I mean, more, most influential by John Murphy, Martin Bring, um, and Dr. Alexander Elder. I mean, that's those are my go-tos um, as far as, uh, yeah. The, and Norman Forsback, too. I have that book, Stock Market Logic. I love that book. I, opened I, that I up. have that book. I've had that for a long time. It's very really an interesting book. Since, since you mentioned books, uh, what, uh, what are you reading currently? Uh, what do you read for fun? Well, I mean, right now... Um, Oh, it's a. I don't want to sound too dorky, but it, it's related to Dungeons and Dragons. It's. Uh, What's the name of the book? Um, the, the Water Deep Dragon Heist. Water Deep Dragon Heist. So that doesn't sound dorky at all. <laughs> no, it's a part of the the adventure and stuff like that that I'm you know put running the running the campaign through. Um, by, by the way, I I know guys in our industry that you would never in a million years guess still do a weekly dungeon, Dungeons & Dragons and have for like 20, 30 years. Gee, sign me up. <laughs> I'd do that in a second. Yeah, it's fun. No, but other than that, I mean, obviously, I when I was in college, um, you know, part of the English writing major is you had to take, you know, literature classes. Mm-hmm. And my favorite literature classes was the Epic Hero. So it was uh, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings. You know, of course, I read The Hobbit prior to that class, but I read it again. I read some of the Lord of the Rings prior to that class. It was a lot of intense reading. I mean, it's Lord of the Rings. I can't even say it. The Cermillion, I can't even say it. But right. And then um, also the Odyssey and the Iliad. Sure. And in, in high school, I, I read um, the uh, the Iliad in, in Latin. <laughs> you're, you're not fluent in Latin, no, are you? No, 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 no. That's I, I. It was high school, but it did help me out with the English language. So, <laughs> which was good. Huh. You know, a lot of the words get derived from uh, Latin, and you know, and obviously German too. So I did take some German in, in college. Unfortunately, <laughs> forgot most of that as well. But that, that's really that's really interesting. So let let's jump to our final two questions. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad interested in a career in either finance or technical analysis? Well, I mean, finance. I think, believe it or not, especially where we are now, creativity is very important. Also, curiosity is very important. Um, when I was looking for a job in finance, uh, coming from a different background, it was tougher, you know. And and I just didn't. I I really I didn't really start making headway until I was up on the news, you know, the Wall Street Journal. Like consistently reading that for like a month, then I was ready to go in and talk to people about careers to some extent. You know, obviously not an expert on anything, but just expressing the interest but i would say not meaning not not professionally relying on the media for information but to be able to have an have intelligent interview and intelligent conversation right because that comes up i mean because uh, when we interview people you know there's always you know there's always hey did you read that story in the world and most of the time people say no i don't do that i listen to podcasts but they still <laughs> get the same information you know similar information not quite as in depth not quite as you but, know, but I know uh, yeah. focused but but that's a good advice go in prepared and be able to talk about you that you're up to speed and re- re- ready to start knowing uh what's happening and i whenever i interview people i always want to know what they're doing outside of outside of business and finance Mm because i find that more interesting in some regards you know like you know if you have like i think let me think the last 
No, like if they were a professional lacrosse player, not professional, a college Division One lacrosse player, that's kind of interesting. You know, right. I mean? it's like they they know how to be part of a team. You know, you know some of those intangibles. So I would say, you know, some of the intangibles and things outside, you know, you know, are interesting. I mean, somebody looking to get into technical analysis. I mean, I would say probably avoid that, like the plague. Why? Not, I mean, are there a lot of technical analysts on the street these days? You know, probably not. You know, mm-hmm. you can count them on maybe two hands. Really? But I would say if you want to get a role in finance or as an analyst um, or as, you know, a financial advisor, learning technicals will save you. It will help you a ton. But you're not going to be getting a role as a technical analyst. It's just there's just not that many of them. <laughs> and often they're just placed at the back of the bus. And as Ralph Affenpora said, that's where they have the beer is. So I'm perfectly happily being in the back <laughs> of the bus. But still, I mean, I, I would say, you know, again, here's another quote. Um, I don't remember who I heard this one from, but it says the CFA designation will get you a job, but the CMT designation will allow you to keep your job. So I, I look, I mean, if you want to become a technical analyst and work at a bowls bracket research firm as a technical analyst, it, it, it's unlikely. You know, I'm very lucky to be sitting where I'm sitting. You know, it's like, and who knows how long it's going to last. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I mean, the, the business is tough. I mean, I'm yeah, just, no, I, it I, definitely, I, and it's gotten tougher on the institutional sell side because uh, of the advent of of either free or practically free trading. But it's very interesting though because you run into a lot of folks on the institutional side that aren't technical analysts but use technical analysis, and some of them. You know, even pursue the CMT designation, which is a chartered market technician, the credential that's the equivalent of the, the CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst. And, you know, they, 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 they do it. I would say if you're interested in a, in a career where you're going to be doing some technicals, I mean, obviously a trading desk type of role might be suited for that. Mm-hmm. An equity analyst would be suited for it. Um, you know, I know a few equity analysts that, that do, not, not that they're making uh, fundamental views based on technicals, but... If they want to upgrade a stock and they look at a chart saying, well, I love the fundamentals on this company, but the chart looks like it can break below 50 and head to 45, maybe I should wait for that to happen. Let, let me ask you a question that that I um, love asking people uh, who, who use both fundamentals and charts. If you're going to buy a stock and in our hypothetical, you can only either read a fundamental research report or look at the chart, which do you do? <laughs> yeah, that's obvious because... It's look at the chart. No question. Why? Because the chart reflects fundamental information. Huh. Bottom line. I mean, look, what does the price reflect? It reflects, you know, you know, a little bit of the funny money from the high frequency trading, which sure. we have no idea what, what that's all about. But it also reflects people's opinion on price action to some, some extent. But it actually reflects what fundamentals are to some extent, too. You know, so it, it's psychology and, you know, what actual factual information is. I mean, it, it's discounting what the fundamental are or will be in the future. So, you know, I would say, uh, you know, you could have a, an analyst note saying, sell this stock. Like it's, you know, it's unholdable or, you know, hard sell on this name, but you look at a chart and it looks like it's forming a double bottom. I may look at the chart more so than the fundamentals because, you know, if the chart works, guess what that analyst has to do? He'll eventually have to change that sell to a hold and that hold to a buy. And if there's 40 of these analysts doing that over a period of time, guess where that stock's going to go? Do, do you look at 
you know, the analyst collective ratings, how many buys, how many sells, how many holds? I do. Yeah, there's um, there's a feature. A&R. Yeah, exactly. A&R. And also there's like I have this recommendation ratio line on my Bloomberg chart. I pull up every once in a while. Sometimes I find it really informative. Other times I don't. But but there are times when when I can when I can see a chart like bottoming out and everybody hates it. And then it breaks out, and it's like it's amazing how the analysts start up, to up, up, up. right. And uh, you know you got a lot of time when that happens. So I, I would I would always gravitate towards a chart, and I would say it's really funny. Like even even folks that consider themselves fundamental investors do the same thing. Huh. Really really interesting. And our final question: What do you know about the world of investing today? You wish you knew twenty five years or so ago when you were first getting started. Yep, I think the biggest thing I wish I knew when I was first getting started is, and you can say it in technical mumbo jumbo and fundamental mumbo jumbo, it's the same thing. A stock, an oversold stock can always become more oversold <laughs> and an undervalued stock can always become more undervalued. And when I learned that, I, I think things improved a lot. You know, right. I wish I knew that early on. I, I learned that as cheap stocks can always get cheaper and expensive stocks can always get more expensive. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's probably a better way of saying it. <laughs> Re really interesting. Steve, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Steve Sotmeyer. He is the chief equity technical strategist for B of A Securities. If you enjoy this conversation, well, check out any of the previous 500 uh, interviews we've done over the past nine years. You can find those at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts on Twitter at Podcast. And be sure and check out my new podcast, At The Money, coming January 1st on Apple Podcasts. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Rich Subnati is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Anna Luke is my producer. Sean Russo is my researcher. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.